Welcome to Practically Political. It's great to have you with us. I'm Dave Spencer. And I'm Carrie Sheffield. Let's get right to it. So for those who regularly read or sorry, uh, watch or listen to Practically Political, you know that we are committed to respectful dialogue. And we have a lovely guest with us. Her name is Alexandra, also known as Lexi Hudson. Um, and she's the author of a wonderful new book called The Soul of Civility. Lexi, welcome to Practically Political. Thanks for having me, Carrie and Dave. So I love this book. I think it's so needed. And it goes into the classics and it brings ancient wisdom and puts it in the modern context of what's happening with our country and the world. And I just would love for you to give an overview. I'm going to read a quote from it that really struck me. Um, it said, the civilization of a nation is not located in impressive architecture or institutions. It is instead located in the character of its people. Civilization is the cumulative effect of individuals' decisions to take the humanity of their fellow persons seriously. Talk a little bit about why you wrote that. So my book is about um, civility. It's about the most important question of our day. How do we flourish across deep difference? And when you look at the human experience, you see that this language of civility and citizenship and civilization are all very intertwined. And this, this um, narrative of us versus them, in-group versus out-group, who's, who's on my side, in my family, a part of my civilization and society, and, who, and who's not, um, often who is, who is the in-group um, is, is defined and cohered uh, by contrast to, to an out-group. And people tell themselves a story of being morally um, superior, intellectually superior, sophisticated. The ancient Greeks, for example, they took civilization very seriously. They, in fact, and they decided that anyone who didn't speak Greek was, was going to be called a barbarian. And that's where we get our uh, word barbarian from. To Greek ears, the word barbarian, um, all non-Greek speaking languages sounded like bar, bar, bar. And so they're like, you know, anyone who's not a native Greek speaker is just a barbarian. And they couldn't just leave it at that, at that, you know, they didn't speak Greek and they were just different from the, the Greeks. They told themselves a story that being non-Greek and, and not speaking Greek was was that meant that they were intellectually, culturally, morally inferior. And so there is this um, uh, this narrative, this like us versus them narrative, this definition of civilization that we see across history and culture. And I try to dispel that. I try to disentangle um, this this language of civility and civilization from its abuses and misuses, because we can all obviously see the harms that come from defining the in-group and the out-group and wanting to tell ourselves a story of superiority and other people um, dismissing them as inferior just because they're different. And so uh, the, the, the passage that you identify, that's from my chapter, connecting civility and civilization and disambiguating faux civilization from true civilization. It's really easy to... Um, to think that civilization is just the cumulative progress of, 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 of advancements, of beautiful architecture, technology, sophistication, and language. Uh, but that's that's actually faux civilization. True civilization is in the character of its people. Um, citizenry who, who care about the dignity and personhood um, uh, of their fellow citizens, of their fellow human beings. So I love this line from Samuel Johnson that 
the test of true civilization is how a society cares for the poor and the vulnerable in a society. It's that sort of common humanity, milk of human goodness definition of civilization. How do we care for those um, in, in, who, who are in need? And it's not it's not about you know architectural, cultural sophistication. It's about um, again how we care for for, for our fellow human beings. And I, I draw particularly from the life and work of Albert Schweitzer in this chapter. Schweitzer was a philanthropist, Alsatian German philanthropist, who was absolutely scandalized by the misuse and abuse of this language of civility and civilization as a as a as a ruse to subjugate and pillage colonial Africa. He visited Africa. And um, as as a as a as a, as a philanthropist, and, as, and he opened a, a hospital there, and, and you know, virtually overnight, thousands of people from across West Africa came to seek care in this hospital. There's such dire and desperate need, and he 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 was um, <clears throat> really convicted by the hypocrisy of of the West, where they claimed to care about human dignity and personhood and universal human rights, and yet they were content to abuse and and, and misuse. Um, African peoples as it suited them. Um, and, and so he, he, in his work, a theory of civilization, he distinguished between faux and true civilization. Faux civilization was a civilization that, again, located its, you know, sophistication in, in, in technological advancements and beautiful architecture. And he said, that's faux civilization. There, he, what he wanted and said was an ethical view of civilization that was grounded in what he called a fundamental reverence for life. All forms of life, and uh, that—that's—that's that's kind of the. the I, I really love Schweitzer's work. I think he's due for a, a revival in our own moment today, as we hear the language of civilization bar and barbarism being tossed around with, um, with, uh, with what's happening in the Middle East right now. Um, and so, thanks for asking, asking Carrie. Yeah, you know, um, I usually don't play clips on our show, but I think there's one that's really relevant to what you're talking about. So. Let me play this, and then we'll talk about it on the, on the other side. In honor of our great veterans on Veterans Day, we pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country, that lie and steal and cheat on elections, the threat from outside forces is far less sinister, dangerous, and grave than the threat from within. I mean, it- okay, there you go. So, I mean, put aside the, you know, the, the references to what Hitler and Mussolini said and the fact that when he talks about these, you know, socialist fascists, he's talking, he seems to be condemning the very people that he's praises and wants to emulate. But he's basically saying, Lexi, that the real enemy is not terrorism or Iran or Russia or China. It's your fellow Americans. It's people that live right in this country. So if this is uh, our former president and leading candidate for the Republican nomination to be president again, how do we have anything approaching civility with that type of of, of bombastic uh, rhetoric careening through our system? It's a it's a great it's a great question, a very important question, because, you know, when the stakes are really high in times of war, in times of uh, and elections where there's a lot at stake, um, there is this temptation to dehumanize the other and, and, and the threats and, and those who are different from us. Uh, and we that's what we saw in that in that clip. And that's what we've seen across history 
and across culture. And that is exactly why when we need civility most, when the stakes are really high. Um, I define civility as distinct from mere politeness. It's instead the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owe to others by virtue of our shared dignity and moral worth as, as human beings. And um, we need to keep that dignity of the other front of mind, especially when the stakes are high, especially when we're tempted to dehumanize them, calling them, calling them, analogizing them to animals, calling them vermin, uh, because we want to dehumanize them because it makes it easier to do and say whatever is necessary in order to win. And again, we see this across history and across culture. This is not a new, a new phenomenon. Um, so, you know, go ahead. So he, yeah. No, I was going to say, here's the big, big question. So how do we ap apply and implement your principles of civility into our divided political system. Uh, you know, as Carrie's heard me say before, right now I'm not a fan of either party, but one party is just way to the left uh, and they're messy, but at least they're democratic. One party is really for authoritarianism and you have a bunch of people in the House of Representatives, frankly, who you have to be an election denier. You can't be depended on to defend the constitution to count it on. So how do you, what do you do? I mean, I love what you're saying, but our system needs it more than ever. It's ex exactly right. The beauty of American democracy is that the citizen is prior to the institution. It's a citizen oriented regime. And that's, that's a gift. That's, it's a wonderful attribute. And so I wrote my book for American citizens you know, I, I hope that the citizens who read it send it to their public leaders. I hope that public leaders read it. But I, I didn't write it for the intelligentsia. I didn't write it for public leaders. I wrote it for everyday Americans um, so that they can demand better from our public leaders and so that they can be a part of the solution in their everyday right now. We have way more power and autonomy to be part of the solution than we realize as, as, as Americans. Um, when I moved from a very toxic season in Washington, Washington politics, uh, 2017 to 2018, I was at the United States Department of Education. I um, fled. I call myself a refugee for federal government and uh, moved to Indianapolis, Indiana. I came home from work one day and said to my husband, I'm done with D.C., I'm done with Washington, done with government. Um, let's leave. Let's move to Indiana. And he, that's where he is from originally. And my husband said, okay done. No take backs. And a few months later, we had moved to moved to the Midwest. And when we moved there, one of my first friends, um, her name was Joanna Taft. She came up to work uh, up to up to me after church one day. And she said, Hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime? And I never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but I was curious and we didn't know many people. So we went to her home that afternoon. And I realized that Joanna is staging a quiet porching revolution from her great big front veranda in the middle in the heart of, of, of Indianapolis. She had curated on her porch that afternoon people across race, across class, geography, politics, not to, you know, talk about our differences point by point in any curated conversation, but just to inhabit a shared space and to sow seeds of trust and friendship across difference that, that otherwise might never happen. Part of the argument of my book is that this, this question of how do we do life together across difference, the define, defining question of, of my book and the most important question of our day, is also a timeless question. And it's a timeless challenge because of our nature as human beings defined by uh, an insatiably social impulse, but also a propensity to self-love, which is intention. It's, oh, that is why 
friendship, community, civilization, democracy is always fragile and never a foregone conclusion. So on one hand, this, um, this idea, this question, this challenge is timeless. On the other hand, there are many things about our moment now that that are different. For example, it's really easy to just go through life virtually and also physically like in person and not really encounter people we don't want to encounter, people who we differ from. We can, you know, in this world of digital nomads, we don't have to leave our home for work. Or when we do go to work, we go from home to car to office and back again. We get our food, groceries delivered to us. We we have Netflix. Like we don't have to leave our house. Everything's curated to us and our and we we curate our, our online existences in the same way. And um, that's a problem for democracy if we're not encountering. And that's something that's also different than, than past eras where we were more likely to just kind of spontaneously come into proximity with people of different walks of life. And so that's what's radical and beautiful about Joanna's front porch. And also the fact that she recognizes, this is what she told me, that she, you know, she said, I can't control what's happening in Washington. I can't control what's being said on the presidential campaign trail. I can't control what's happening across the world, this untold suffering in other parts of the world, but I can control myself. And I'm going to reclaim you know, my civic sphere of influence and make my community stronger and my family better and, and do what I can to be part of the solution in my everyday. So, and what I learned when I was a Novak journalism fellow is that there are people like Joanna doing this across the country with and without their front porches. They're choosing to reclaim ownership over their civic sphere and, um, and say, I can't control what's happening across the world or in Washington, but I can control myself. And, 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 I'm, and change is going to start with me. And that, that is very much my theory of social change, my theory of how do we, you know, have a better, a brighter future for our children. I mean, that's the reason I wrote this book. I have two young kids and I desperately wanted them to grow up in a world that was a little bit more gentle and a little bit brighter. And yeah, that, I, that no, I think it's great. Well, I think um, so. Yes. What I love about your book is that it is you bring in some, you know, very, very impressive figures in history like Plato and uh, just ancient figures and ancient stories like the epic, you know, the story of Gilgamesh. Um, but then you make it very digestible and very accessible in a very, you know, just plain spoken language. And so I, I think it's great um, to fuse that, uh, those two approaches. And, but I guess related to, you know, Dave played a clip from current day um, I, you quote a lot from Martin Luther King Jr. And you say that he influenced your work heavily. And there's a quote that you included. It's, um, he says that all segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregated a false sense of inferiority. And it gives the segregated a false sense of, uh, uh, what was the word? Uh, like superiority. inferiority, sorry, inferiority. Um, do you think, think that we're, we're kind of doing that now? Do we have almost like a new neo-segregation in what's happening? Because, you know, we're seeing some college graduations, for example, or dorms that uh, certain races are not allowed to enter. Um, you know, I when I was a journalist, I reported over in, I think it was Oregon. They had um, certain public areas that white people were not allowed to be in. Um, and then, you know, some daycares are having events that are white children are not allowed to go to these events. Um, do you think we're kind of experiencing that, but in a new way? And and what do you think that's doing to our culture? Well, I, I think that you are very correct to identify that as a central 
uh, theme and, and quote to my entire book. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we're living in a new era of segregation, but I'll tell you why that quote means so much to me. Uh, you're right. Martin Luther King says segregation hurts both parties. It hurts the segregated by making them feel inferior, a false sense of inferiority. It hurts the segregator as well by deforming their soul and giving them a false sense of superiority. And I, um, Dr. King is getting this idea from Socrates. Socrates says that um, virtue, living a life in accordance with, um, with justice and, and having a just soul is its own reward, whereas a vicious soul a person that walks around and is malicious and callous and unkind to others, that's a symptom of a vicious soul, that's its own punishment because that's sickness of the soul. So people who are cruel, they don't deserve our contempt and disdain. They deserve our compassion, our empathy, because they're clearly um, experiencing a sickness of the soul, whether they realize it or not. And they're suffering, whether they realize it or not. They're hurting themselves by acting viciously whether they've realized or not. So that's where Dr. King, that's the intellectual well where he's drawing from. And I borrow from Socrates and Dr. King and analogize that idea to civility. We, we underappreciate today that incivility is mutually harmful. We hear a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric across the political spectrum where people say, um, you know, we have to be willing to pull the gloves off and be willing to do anything in order to beat the other side. The other side is an existential threat to who we are, and they are so bad, so evil, so wrong that they can't be reasoned with. They cannot be, um, they can't, they're, they're, they, we can't, we, we can't engage in persuasion with them anymore. We have to be willing to just beat them and destroy them, you know, own the lives, all of this sort of apocalyptic zero-sum language of war. And what people insufficiently appreciate today that, you know, they're, they're, we, we hear like, you know, nice guys finish last and you have to be willing to be a bully and a strong man in order to get ahead. But there's no, there's no actually being a strong man and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a tyrant and, and getting ahead. There's no being uncivil and actually winning, at least not according to uh, Socrates, Dr. King and many, many other thoughtful people. Because when we are cruel and malicious and harm and dehumanize another human being, yes, we hurt them. But we also hurt ourselves, too. We debase our own soul. We inflame our inner tyrants, our inner Gilgamesh, which is an idea that I unpack in, in the book. The, uh, this part of our soul that uh, has a lust to, to hurt and harm others, that we have to restrain every moment of every day. And, um, and, and so when we feed that, it, it, does, it does hurt us as well. We insufficiently appreciate that you know, there, there's no um, taking the gloves off and winning at any cost, that when we hurt others, when we're uncivil and kind, we hurt ourselves too. And conversely, when we are gracious, when we're hospitable, when we forgive, um, that is mutually ennobling, engaging in those acts of civility. So just as incivility is mutually harmful, civility is mutually ennobling. Well, but I think part of the problem is that Martin Luther King and Socrates didn't live in our current day environment when you have social media and everyone is in these bubbles. And again, uh, you know, we're not naming names here, but certain people are going to get away with as much as they can. And the fact is that when, when people make comments like that, you know, things that, that, again, any other politician would have had his career ended uh, long ago. And people not only uh, don't stand up, but they just shrug. They just let it run off. So it comes becomes an accepted part of our discourse. And that's why, again, I, I still didn't really hear you answer the question, but what if there's one or two things that we can do uh, based on your principles, if you could have one or two things that we could change or adapt 
to our political system, to our government that would have the biggest impact towards achieving your goals, what would they be? I mean, one, don't don't support strongmen, people who use inflammatory rhetoric, people who who use threats and, and, and coercion and who and who adopt that those sort of mentality. Well, that tell of, that to um, Carrie in the Republican base. That sort of that sort of mentality. I mean, that's 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 one thing. I mean, that's the beauty of democracy that we uh, we can support leaders who reflect our values. That's that's totally our prerogative to do. That is absolutely within our control. Second, okay. that so that's that's like looking outward. But the other one is looking inward. What are we doing in our everyday? How can we do a better job of seeing, knowing, and loving the, the countless anonymous people that we that we meet in our everyday, the people close to us, our family and friends? How are we creating, you know, front porches of, of foster, that foster civility and incubate community and hospitality in our very broken, very divided, very atomized time? We are in a crisis of alienation and, and isolation right now. Hannah Arendt, she said that in when when there is existential loneliness in a society, that is when a society is most prone to strong men and to tyrants. That was her observation about the rise of, of Adolf Hitler. And so what can we do? Like you can't, no public leader can, can be elected and then, you know, um, foster friendship in America. Like, you know, there's no pub, that's not, that's something beyond the purview of public policy and law. And that's something that we each have a role to play of, of, of helping our fellow citizens, our fellow human, fellow human beings feel seen, known, and loved creating place, creating space for, for trust and friendship and relationship. That is, and this is, this is exactly what my book is about, that there's so much that is so important in human life that is beyond the scope of government and law, but that is where so much of our public discourse wants to be. <laughs> and, and in my opinion, it shouldn't be, it's inordinately focused on that when some of the most important um, subject matter and, 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 and realms of human life are way beyond the scope of, of government politics and law. I agree with that. I think it really is cultural and the cultural norms that uh, we allowed. Because the thing about Trump that I don't hear a lot of folks talk about is he was a celebrity for decades before he became president. And it was the culture of Hollywood and the culture of uh, embracing the type of language that now people are clutching their pearls well, where were, where were you when he was doing all those things? He, oh, yeah, you were giving him multi-million dollar contracts. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg, Barbara Walters, um, getting buying condos in Trump Tower or Oprah giving him a huge platform. So he's the same person that he was before. It's just that our culture enabled him uh, and his rhetoric and, and the cheating and, and all that. So I, I think that it is ultimately cultural. I, I do agree with you, Lexi. I really do. And I... I think that, you know, culturally, if you look at the type of content coming out of Hollywood today versus like, let's say in Dwight Eisenhower's time, culturally, and I'm not saying government censorship should happen, but culturally, that sort of content just wouldn't be accepted in American culture back then. So, and, and it's interesting because when, when I say things like that, like, oh, well, you just want to take us back to the 50s and you want segregation, you want no women's rights. It's like, no, I, I'm sorry. Like you can, you can keep the baby and, you know, yeah. throw out the bathwater. You can say, I support the civil rights act. I support women's rights, but I also support a culture that is civil and that is, uh, you know, actually culturally has norms that are not crass, but you reap what you sow. And that's what I find kind of ironic coming from Hollywood, which is predominantly leftist. Well, I think, again, I would just say, if you look, I grew up in New York City, so I've known 
not personally, but certainly uh, through almost every other means, Donald Trump my entire life. And he was a very different person. He would maybe go after Rosie O'Donnell. Okay, that was the extent of his uh, negative attacks. But when you go over, and, and by the way, when you're president of the United States, you're supposed to be president for everybody. And the, so this is this is the kind of thing, though. But again, you always hear it. He's he's a victim of circumstance. He's he's the 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 victim. This is the way he's. I'm not saying he's a victim. Not. I'm saying he can he push is, as he far as he will he get away product. with. And he's and this product, is the thing. Okay. Anyway, this is the thing, Lexi, is that when you're dealing with, and this is not just Trump, but there are a lot of people who are like pathological narcissists, and they're incapable of empathy. They're incapable of the introspection. They're incapable of admitting that they're wrong. And they're incapable of the accountability that you need, in my opinion, to be civil. So if you're missing some of the ingredients, how can you bake the pie? Well, one thing I will say about our current moment, like, I mean, and Christ said it better and, and first, um, you know, why it, we, we, have, we live in this culture of blame where we, where we want to, we want to point pinpoint, you know, one technology, one epiphenomena, one, one leader, and like, this is the cause, right? Um, and, you know, Christ said, why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? Like we, you know, it's really cathartic. Like, I think we have a lot of pent up emotional <laughs> energy and stuff that, that we, which is why we relish the sort of gladiatorial ethos of public discourse and public life right now. It's like the Romans had Christians being thrown to the lions and gladiators tearing, tearing one another apart. And we love seeing, you know, our public leaders lay into one another. Like it's not all that different and it inflames like the ugly base part of the soul that we share um, and that the Romans had, you know, 2000 years ago. Um, and I, that's why my theory of social change is, is hyper individual and it is, it is local. And it's saying, you know, we're not going to blame Donald Trump. We're not going to blame Twitter and Elon Musk. We're not going to blame Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. We're, we're going to say like, what can we, what can we do given the world that is not the world that we wish there was, what are we going to do to be a part of the solution? And to be quite frank with you, I think Carrie's right that, um, it's, it's a misdiagnosis. To, to pinpoint any one of these epiphenomena, any one leader, any one technology, um, because the, mo the this this challenge again is timeless. It's always existed. It's part of part of the human condition. So it's a misdiagnosis to pinpoint um, to, to to pinpoint one entity today. It, it, the, the, this challenge of civility preexisted. These people, these these technologies, and they will uh, exist. This challenge will exist after after they have fallen to the wayside uh, as well. And so I think it's, it's, it's helpful to focus on, you know, what we can control. What are, what are we doing? What are you doing, Dave, to be a part of the solution to this problem in, in, in your everyday, not just what you're saying on, on television and podcasts, but like how you're living your life, how you're building community wherever you go, because that's our responsibility. That, that's, that's the most important. Like, I believe that as a mother. I wrote this book. This is this book is my third child, and I'm, I'm proud of it. I love sharing it with the world. But I know that the best thing that I'll ever do with the world, for the world, is to create good humans and to be a good mom, the best mom I can be to my kids. And that's always my absolute priority for that reason. That is a wonderful, upbeat note on which to end. <laughs> Lexi, uh, so admire your work. We, we need more people out there uh, doing what you're doing. As Carrie knows, I'm a glasses uh, half full kind of guy. So I really applaud what you're doing and uh, best of luck. And hopefully we will, we will see you again soon. It's great to have you on. Thanks so much to you both for having me. Thanks, Lexi. Take care. Thanks for joining us again on another episode of Practically Political. 
We look forward to seeing you back with us soon. I'm Dave Spencer. Have a great day.